We mean like raise the, uh, add another cushion maybe to your seat, or you could even turn it like this um, on the edge, um, or get, I don't know where all of the support cushions are, but you really want your legs to, you want your knees to touch the cushion or the floor. Otherwise, you'll, you'll stress them out. So, um, yeah. So it would be helpful if you want to... Yeah, I don't know. There's a few brown support cushions up there. I don't know where they all are. So that's one thing I just would suggest. And even if you need to put, like, a cushion underneath each knee or, you know, change if you're able to sit like this with, you know, your different legs crossed or something. That would be helpful. Or the other way you can sit is, so this is like half lotus. The other way you can sit is what we call Burmese, you know, where your ankles are lined up and there's just one foot in front of the other. And again, you know, when I say raise your seat, you can, I'm sitting on this, I forgot to bring my inflatable cushion, but um, I'm sitting on this buckwheat one. So, um, yeah, it's just very helpful because the body is, um, we need to stabilize the body in a comfortable but alert way in order for the mind to, to settle. Oh, okay. All right, one more minute. Are you, are you all staying out there? Oh, okay. Why are you waving? Bye. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Let's wait for those people to come in. See, there's like four or five more people out there, so. Hello. <laughs> okay, so. Um, why don't we go around the room and say names, and we'll say names and we'll repeat everybody's name, um, trying to uh, become familiar with who's in the room. And so, since people are still coming in this way, why don't we start over here and just sort of disorganizedly, organizedly go through the room and say our names. So, why don't you start? Sure, Allie. Allie. Diego. Diego. Pardon me? Jenny. 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 Oh, you said your name? What is it? Diego. Oh, Diego. Oh, what's... Oh, Josh. Josh. Okay. <laughs> Josh, Jenny, Diego, Ali. Okay. Elliot. Elliot. 
Robert. Kevin. Greg from Tennessee, welcome. And you? Reese. Aiden. Star. Alex. Nani. Rosalie. Romani. Close enough? Sorry, it's hard to hear without with the masks on. <laughs> Kyle. Nicholas. Sophia. Miles. What about the Sunny? Great. Um, Johnny. Sarah. Kathleen. Emily, Arlene, Marlene, Selena, Laura, D, D, okay, and Natalie. Do we? Who did we miss? I think of Tim, Tim, okay, Swati. Two more. And your name? Michael. Michael. Mika. Mika? Yeah. Okay. Sorry if I mispronounce people's names. It's hard to. So um, I began practicing Zen in Austin, Texas at the Austin Zen Center. And that was in 2001. And when I first got there, or some time thereafter, one of the teachers there, the main teacher there, had spent a number of years at the monastery. And she mentioned that the schedule at the monastery and even Zazen uh, is like putting a snake in a bamboo pole. And maybe some of you have heard that phrase. Of course, back then I was really new and I thought, what does this mean? You're putting a snake in a bamboo pole. Why would you want to put a snake in a bamboo pole? Isn't that going to hurt the snake? Can't the snake just slither out of the pole? Right? So I didn't know. It was like Zen speak. right? So I, I wasn't sure what she meant by that. And I was reminded of this metaphor about the snake and the bamboo pole because I just had the good fortune of sitting a week-long session at Green Gulch Farm. So session means like touching or collecting body-mind. And this was a study session. So we studied um, an essay, a teaching, and we sat eight periods of zazen, two in the morning, early morning, two in the... Um, the regular people's morning <laughs> from nine to noon <laughs> and then two in the afternoon and then two in the evening. So it was eight periods altogether. And session is usually more intense than that. But since this was like a study session, we studied some teachings and then we sat with some inquiry and then we studied teaching. It was a Dharma talk in the afternoon and the evening, I mean the morning and the afternoon. But this metaphor, I remember this metaphor because of being in this session, right? This uh, bamboo pole of the session. And since, you know, most of us live our lives outside of the monastery and outside and off of this cushion, right? Um, it doesn't mean that we can't take what we call zazen mind or meditation mind with us as we go about our day. Um, and uh, my friend was telling me, I, I don't have this book, but my friend 
who I was just podcasting with, she's done a ton of pilgrimages. And uh, she just came back from a thousand mile walk. Um, I think she was gone for about four months. But she mentioned this book, which I'm interested in looking at, called The Monastic, the Monastic Heart. Um, and so it got me thinking about how is it that we can, we can create our own monastic environment, if you will, without actually going to a monastery. Um, and this, you know, mainly is, you know, the monastery is set up to help us pay attention to the present moment, okay? So, th and this is what we're doing here when we're practicing meditation, is doing our best to keep the mind, which loves to wander, in the present moment, okay? Making the present more relevant, right? And, um... So this, so this idea of this pole, right, is like a container. And, and you know, in Zen speak, we call, uh, say like, so in Zen speak, we call this container, the schedule at the monastery is a container, right? It's a way for us to notice what's going on. Just like when we were sitting here, right? Um, we don't often notice how busy our minds are until we actually steady the body. We stop the body, right? So part of what we're doing, as I'm sure you've heard other people talk about in meditation, is stopping, which is called shamatha, and vipassana, which is insight. So we're stopping the body so that we can have some insight and some calm, right? This shamatha, this calming. Um, and when we're, you know, since we're in this society that really loves to be productive all the time, I'm not exactly sure why, but um, we just love productivity and we also love entertainment. <laughs> um, maybe those go hand in hand, uh, that we're overly programmed and therefore we're also seeking out all this um, entertainment. So um, some of these practices I'll mention um, might be helpful as we go about our day uh, in nine to five world. So the first one, the first two are all about like this bamboo pole, right? So the first one is follow the schedule or essentially if you're not at a monastery, you know, you're creating your own schedule, okay? So this schedule, like I said, is, is a container, right? We're, we're pouring ourselves into this container on our meditation cushion um, so that we can watch and study the body-mind. So in um, the monastery, it's highly structured, which for someone like myself who isn't so structured, boy, did I understand what it felt like to be a snake in a bamboo pole. <laughs> it's like waking up at 3.50 a.m. You're basically in the meditation hall or all morning. You're eating your breakfast. You're eating all your meals in there. You have like f an hour for exercise at the end of the day and bathing. So it's very, you know, yeah, almost like militaristic in that way. You just go from one thing to the next, and everything is um, laid out for you. So when you're in the monastery and you're following the schedule, what happens is gradually your ego, well, your ego resists, that's the second point, but you're, you start to notice when you're wiggling, right, in that bamboo pole, right? You start to notice some of your preferences um, because you're following the schedule. And, you know, of course, you could just say, hey, I'm not going to follow the schedule eventually they probably would ask you to leave. So you're voluntarily putting yourself in this situation, right? 
And then we start to, because we're in this tight container, like I said, we feel these preferences arise. Because we're not, we don't get to make our own food. So we have a lot of preferences show up around food. I don't know about you all, but I don't really like amaranth for breakfast. And often we had amaranth. Do you know what amaranth looks like as a breakfast cereal? It's kind of like a chemistry experiment. It has these little, it's like viscous and these little granular things floating in it. And I know some people love it, but I couldn't stand it. And then also, you know, you don't want to wake up so early and you don't want to sit next to this person in the zendo. So you start to notice all these ways in which you're not in control, right? And you're trying to change things and manipulate the schedule, okay? Um, and it's not that there's anything wrong with having preferences, but I came up with this handy phrase, like preference is a reference, right? So you have a reference point. I'm someone who dislikes amaranth. Okay, but you know when you're really hungry, you're going to eat the amaranth, right? <laughs> right, so, you, so your egoic preferences start to, I'll, I'll use the word attenuate, because you're, no, you're not able to like, you can't say, I'm not going to eat, you know, you cannot eat the amaranth, but you can't change that you're getting the amaranth in your bowl, right? So the ego starts to bump up against this pole, and you notice all these preferences that you have. So when we're not in the monastery and we're making up our own schedule, um, or you know, corporate speak would call it time blocking, and some of the most successful business people I've met way back in the day, um, they did a time blocking. I remember working with this one real estate agent. He was very, very successful. He had been a very successful minor league baseball player. And he had all these Buddha statues in his office. And I remember asking him, are you Buddhist? He's like, no, I just, I just like them. And he, um, he was so disciplined. He would just get up every morning. So I was a video producer, and we were just following him around throughout his day. And he's like, yeah, every morning I wake up at 4 a.m., I go to Starbucks, I get my you know, matcha latte, six pump, whatever it was. He had the same exact thing at the same exact time at the same exact Starbucks. And then he went to the gym, no matter what. Like, he just did it. And then he spent his first few hours doing this. Nobody can interrupt him, right? So he was time blocking. And he said when those thoughts arose about like, don't go to the gym or don't do this, he just continued to follow that schedule that he set out for himself, right? So, you know, um, I'm sure some of you will notice this, or you probably already have. It's like you decide to, um, oh, I'm going to start an exercise routine, right? It's, it's not the new year anymore. It's already March, for crying out loud. But you know, oh, I'm going to start the, something about the new year. Like, it really matters what day you start on. But we all sort of like gorge ourselves in November and December. And then we're like, okay, now I'm going to start on January 1st. But it's just a mental thing, right? You could just start it on November 22nd, right? Uh, anyway, but you start to notice, oh, I'm going to meditate every day. And then all of a sudden these voices show up. Don't meditate. You can't go to the gym. You got other things to do like doom scrolling and checking your emails and oh yeah you should walk a dog oh you don't have a dog well then get a dog so you can walk the dog you know you're just like oh my gosh right so and then he would because he was so disciplined he just would whatever that was he just did it you know he just he just followed the schedule he followed the schedule that he made for himself right the same at the monastery i just followed the schedule even though I was sometimes grumping along about it. But, um, you know, that's the practice, is you put yourself into this bamboo container, 
and you get to notice all these reference points, all these preferences that you have. You know, and some of these preferences are pretty, um, they may seem kind of insignificant but um, and harmless, but sometimes they can get, sometimes they affect our mood. And this sort of goes into the next practice of, or the next guideline really is, or wisdom, like, like resistance is futile and it's also exhausting, right? All that energy is coming up and you start engaging all that energy about why you shouldn't be exercising or why you shouldn't be meditating and nothing like like I don't know I'm a writer so every time I you know nothing gets me to clean the apartment like having to write something it's like oh I have a talk to write well <laughs> you know and I've seen other people like this other woman on Facebook she's like I just cleaned my entire 6,000 square foot house because I got to write a paragraph you know you're like oh so there's some weird thing that arises when you're you're trying to do something sometimes right but it does, there's a lot of energy you waste at the monastery because you keep trying to want things to be different and they're not. You want to wake up later and you can't. You don't want amaranth and you can't. This person next to you is driving you crazy or your mind's driving you crazy but they, your mind's telling you it's the person next to you, um, right? So it's futile and it's also exhausting, right? So then this bamboo pole is actually the present moment, the reality of the present moment. Right? right now, we're all in this room. This is the reality, our shared reality. The present moment, things as they are, is that bamboo pole. And we resist it. Right? We resist reality. So part of practicing meditation is actually um, getting in touch with reality. Right? Becoming intimate with the reality of this body and mind in this present moment. Okay? Um, so if this pole is the reality of the present moment, then you could say, when we wiggle, you know, there's this little me of the meditator, right, wiggling in that pole. And of course, you know, the body is confined on this cushion. So it's not just, but it's not just your body that's wiggling. You can notice that your mind is wiggling, right? It's just meandering around everywhere. And that's just what it does, right? It's just how it operates. And it's the same for most people. The mind likes to wander. And so for me, you know, I feel like this pole of zazen or the schedule, whatever schedule you decide to make for yourselves, um, it shows us how we're wasting our energy when we resist. And of course, it's a little easier to break your own schedule because you're the one who's making it, right? And maybe you all know this phrase from your jobs, like an accountability partner. So you, you, you say, oh, hey, you know what, Dharma buddy, I'm going to sit. That insight, insight timer, right, where you could sit together uh, or something, right? So that sometimes is helpful. That's another container, right? The container of sangha, right? I'm gonna, I'm gonna let this person know that I'm gonna meditate and we're gonna meditate together, right? So making this, this schedule, this container together, right? Because resistance, we're trying not to, we're trying to change something. We're not, we're trying not to comply with something. Um, and I think that when we're able to stay physically still, it also helps us to stay still or unmoving when the mind starts to yak, 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 right? right? We notice the mind's yakking, we just come back to the breath over and over, 
Right? We notice that wiggling, mental wiggling in the pole. I don't want to have amaranth. I don't want to sit next to this person. You know, at the monastery, the last six months I was there, there's these two lovely people sitting next to me, one on either end. And they both had, maybe I shouldn't say this, <laughs> but they had some digestive issues. Let's just say that. And it was like, you could hear their, you know, we're not in charge of what goes on in our bellies or anything like that. But, you know, it was just like, wow, there's just a lot of, I called them, <laughs> I called them, you know, I, I called them the burpsy twins, you know, <laughs> instead of the bopsy twins, because there was a whole lot of digestive stuff going on. And, you know, I just sort of, I just like sat there and just, well, the mind, you know, it's, Again, you know, we can't control what's going on. So it was just like, how am I, how, what's my mental posture going to be toward this, right? Because I can't move away from this. And I'm sure I annoy people as well, right? So it's not just like, so it's like, what's the mental posture toward this? We could either resist it and waste our energy, or I can just relax and hope that they feel better. You know, just relax, allow the mind to relax, right? Drop all that resistance, all that chatter in the mind. And I think the more that we're attuning the mind to the body, the more that we are practicing or exercising this um, faculty of attention that can help us with the mind, right? Because it's, it's, it's definitely feels more ephemeral, our thinking, obviously, than our physical form. So also this um, routine in the monastery or routine you make up for yourself also helps us practice with choicelessness, which I know some of us here in, in the United States has, we just love our freedom. Um, and sometimes we don't think about responsibility, but I'm not gonna talk about responsibility. But this choicelessness, that's the other thing that a monastic environment affords you, is just choicelessness. Right, you, 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 the ego is being further and further reduced because the ego can't manipulate the situation. The ego can't make a choice. So not only does that, um, obviously that's obviously part of the container, uh, is we, we, we uh, practice with choicelessness. We watch the ego get really annoyed by all that. Of course, the ego doesn't really exist. And then it slowly attenuates itself. It slowly gets from like a shout to like a little murmur because you're not really giving into it anymore, right? It's like, okay, I know, ego, you don't like amaranth, but you've mentioned that seven, five hundred thousand, six million times, and look, there's still amaranth. So, right, after a while, you're just like, okay, thank you, and I'm gonna eat my amaranth. Right? So this practice of choicelessness, okay? And we get to start to notice that when there's a separate me arising, that I want to do something else. As soon as that word I shows up, I want to sleep in. I want to do this. I want to do that. Again, this is the ego. This is our, our creating a separate self. And when you're in a monastery, you notice when people aren't in the meditation hall because you're all going together. You're like a school of fish, right? You're all going in. You're like, oh, that person's not here. And maybe that person was supposed to ring the wake-up bell, and then they don't ring the wake-up bell. And then you really feel that interdependency. You really feel the one body of that, of that community because you're doing everything at the same time together for over the course, in this case, of three months, right? 
So this choicelessness, right, um, I think is very helpful practice. And I remember a friend of mine, he um, had like a nervous breakdown in the cheese section at a, rest at a grocery store in Austin, Texas, because he was just overwhelmed by all the choices. I don't know about you, but when I grew up, there was like three types of cheese. There was like Kraft, yellow, Kraft, white. They were slices. They were not slices. There was probably more than that because I grew up in a very Italian neighborhood, so there was a lot of different, some different cheeses, but not like we have now. You know, so it was a little overwhelming, right? It's like, oh. And so the mind, the neocortex starts to settle when we're not engaging all these choices anymore. And it's actually kind of a relief. I don't know about you all, but sometimes it's like, yeah, just tell me what to do. I'm, I'm good with that. Just tell me what to do. Allow the body-mind to settle. Sink into that container when you're on the cushion. Just sink into it and allow yourself just to settle into what's um, happening, becoming really intimate with that present moment, you know. Um. <laughs> And I think that we don't really notice what our um, resistances are or our preferences are because they're so habitual until we're, we're removed from that routine, right? And we end up going someplace like a monastery or maybe go to a country, right? This brings me to the, you know, the next um, guideline or the next practice really is like expanding your comfort zone. So when you, you know, we often feel like we're in control of everything and then you go to like a monastery or just even a week-long retreat. And it's, for some people, it's really scary to feel like they're not in control of everything. And for other people, it's like a huge relief. It's like, wow, I don't have to make any choices about anything. I can just sit here and someone's going to feed me and then all I have to do is clean the toilet and I'm just going to go to the meditation hall. So... This choicelessness for me was really expanding my comfort zone because I, even though I wouldn't say that I was like a controlling person, but you notice a little bit more about how controlling you are actually when, when all these distractions and choices are removed from you, you know, and you're just like, okay, now it's just me and I'm here. Um, like at the monastery, I didn't have heat, you know, for the first three months. Actually, most of the time I was there, I didn't have heat. And that was very difficult for me to sit without any heat. Nobody has any hot water in their cabin and there's no shower in the cabin. You have to walk to the bathhouse. But some people did have heat. So I had a practice with, you know, getting up really early and just like shivering all the time. So expanding our comfort zone. That's often also where we notice our preferences, right? right? We notice what's going on for us, how we're resisting um, what's going on. I couldn't... It is true that occasionally I did, the, this person I just did the podcast with who did the pilgrimages, we were at the monastery together and when she was sleeping in the meditation hall for one of the jobs, she let me sleep in her heated cabin. <laughs> oh my gosh, it was so amazing. I could just think about it now. I was like, oh, yeah, all right. Anyway, but how, you know, what comes up? What, what, which Heather shows up when she's freezing and exhausted? Right? It's easy to be calm when, you, when you're in this uh, tremendous comfort, right? But when you start pulling those things away from you, the heat and the hot water, and you have to wash your laundry by hand, you're just like, oh my gosh, this is 
crazy. <laughs> and then you get to see your mind, right? You get to see the mind reacting and resisting. So like expanding our comfort zone, I think I might be. Okay, so expanding our comfort zone, you know, we have, as we know, all these modern conveniences. And it seems like these modern conveniences um, should really bring us tremendous amount of um, peace. But uh, if our peace of mind, if our stability of mind rests on the fact that I have heat or I have hot water or I have a washing machine or a dryer, then that's like a stability of mind on some external object. And when that goes away, where's stability of mind, right? And we don't maybe notice that because we have all these comforts and conveniences at our fingertips. Maybe not all of us, but many of us uh, at a certain socioeconomic level, you know, um, have all these ingenious inventions that, um, I don't know, they give us more free time, but exactly what are we doing with all that free time? You don't need to answer that, I'm just saying. <laughs> Um, and has it made us any happier? I mean, you know, the mind, delusive mind, you know, mind can dupe us into thinking that there aren't, um, you know, that we are, if we just keep acquiring things, we'll feel fulfilled. A new car, a new job, a new person to be in love with, or a new person um, to hate, <laughs> right? You know, we think that all these things outside of us are actually going to make us feel a certain way. So when you go to the monastery or you just do, you know, maybe come do a one-day sit, right? And you're just doing a one-day sit or even a half-day sit. We're having them once a month now. Just, even if it might feel a little scary, just drop into a half-day sit and see what comes up when you put yourself in that container for three or four hours, you know? Because it, it, it's, yeah, you just never know. I know when I first did my first one-day sit, oof, that was crazy. I, I remember, speaking of voices, I remember driving to the Austin Zen Center and I kept saying, I'm not going, I'm not going, I'm not going, I'm not going, you know, just to psych my mind out, I'm not going, I'm not going. And I just closed the door, I walked into the meditate, I walked in, I'm like, I'm, yeah, I'm not doing this, I'm not doing this. <laughs> anyway, it worked. I, I don't know, I managed to sit from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. I don't know how, but, um, and so during this, Sashin at Green Gulch, we actually lost power for a whole day because we had this crazy weather this past week. So all of a sudden we had no electricity and no heat. There I was again in the cold, in the dark, right? And what comes up? You know, oh my gosh, I wish PG&E would hurry up. I wish, you know, <laughs> I can't believe that there's no heat. How come this little thing doesn't work? How come there's not, you know? And then you're just like, okay, that's actually creating more tension and exhaustion in my body. Right? Because all there is right now is just me in the cold, you know, and I brought a hot water bottle with me because I'm a monk. <laughs> so I did have a hot water bottle. Um, but yeah, again, where is stability of mind? Is it out there? Are you all responsible for my stability of mind? Right? Are you all responsible for my internal peace? No. Right? So when we expand our comfort zone, we um, start to see where our um, stability of body-mind is, you know? Where, where are we stable and what throws us off, you know? And then, just a couple more things. Also, um, maybe you all do this already. 
MITs in the morning, right? Most important things in the morning. Or MMITs, monk or monastic most important things. And that was meditating um, in the morning, studying if you can, doing some stretching, kind of getting those most important things out of the way. And then that way, at least for me, it helps me stay more focused and relaxed. And also, I have more concentrated energy in the morning. So trying to get those things done in the morning that uh, are most important to me, right? And at the monastery, it was meditating. It was, well, not really exercising, but stretching in the morning, studying, doing service all in the morning, right? And then um, here's one, two, that I think is really helpful. There's just two more. One is when you're eating, just eat, right? Maybe you, some of you have heard that phrase, uh, chopping wood and carrying water, right? So it's like, how can we just do one thing at a time? So at the monastery and also during this week-long retreat, I know if people call it a retreat, I feel like I was sitting around getting mani-pedi every day and drinking a tropical drink, but I wasn't. So... Um, so when we're eating, we just eat. So at the monastery, we have what we call oriochi meals. And oriochi means like just enough. And there's these three small bowls. And you, um, we ate three meals a day at this retreat as well. And what I liked about it is that you're just eating in silence. You know, I come from an Italian-American background where all they do is talk through the whole meal. If they really like you, they'll shout at you as well, <laughs> with their mouth open, right? You know, it's like, woo, big family, and you're just eating and chatting, and it's really wonderful and warm. And I have to say, when I sit silently and I eat in this ritual way, it's really much more satisfying because I'm focusing on eating. You know, I'm not talking to other people. And after being at the monastery for so long, and then you go out to eat with people, you're just like, they're going to ask me to talk. Just, can I just eat first? because I felt more satisfied with the smaller amount of food because I was focusing on this one thing, right? So eating in silence, if you can, even for like the first 10 minutes, just eating in silence, which we do here in the evenings, right? Just paying attention to that one thing or another way you could say this is um, like using two hands to do things, like a two-hand practice, right? I don't know about you all, but I, you know, I found myself sometimes like, I'm putting this thing away, but I'm not really paying attention to it, and it ends up on the floor or something like that, right? Can I keep my, my two hands doing something, you know, keeping my attention on the one thing? So this, um, we call this like bringing zazen mind, this concentrated body mind into our activities, this undivided activity as much as possible. So eating in silence if you can. Again, even for the first 10 minutes or so. And then also... Just when you're eating or when you're walking, just, just walk when you're walking. I know that's not so easy around here. Ah, the tempter. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to give a Dharma talk. I'm going to talk about this. Okay, yeah. Oh, you guys are here in the room. Hi, how's it going? Okay. Have you, I'm sure you all do that, right? You're at lunch with a friend and you're just like, oh, yeah, it's great. So, uh-huh, uh-huh. And you're like, ah, pay attention to me. So, uh, at Tassahara, another one of the rules was sit down to eat and drink. And I thought that was kind of a silly rule when I first got there. And I walked with this lovely piece of bread with peanut butter slathered on it. And I was walking down the path and I tripped on a root or a rock. 
So not only did I lose my peanut butter and my bread, but I also had this massive peanut butter. And then just at, the t just at that moment, Abbot David Zimmerman, who was at Tassajara, he wasn't the abbot back then, he walked by and said, that's why we have that guideline. <laughs> See what happens when you walk and eat at the same time. It's like, yeah, okay. Yeah, got it. Sit down, you know, sit down. And I find, I'm a snacker. So it's like, oh, geez, you just, can you just sit down, Heather, and eat this? It's so funny. I don't know about you all, but I'm like, you know those chip clips, right? What do I need a chip clip for? I'm just going to be eating those chips as I walk. I mean, I don't need a chip clip. So it's like, <laughs> just do one thing at a time, okay? That's the main thing there. Just try to do one thing at a time. And the last thing is sitting in the dark, right? So we lost power, and that was really great because in the morning and in the evening, and even in the later afternoon, Kokio, uh, who was the teacher, he just started slowly disappearing in the dark. It was really cool in the meditation hall. You could barely see him after a while. And there's something about sitting in the dark. So even if you just close your eyes, even if the lights aren't off, but just even closing your eyes and then just... Like when you're meditating, maybe you noticed this when we were doing it. It gives your other senses, it brings your other senses uh, more to the fore. And then when you are even sitting in the dark, you know, just turning off the light, you know, your proprioception changes. Your body slowly starts to feel not so solid anymore, you know. And then also you're, you get to relax. Right, your eyes, you know, the stress of your eyes always staring, trying to figure things out. We're such visual creatures and forward-looking creatures because that's where our eyes are. Just practice sitting in the dark. You know, turning off all your, turning off the lights, not looking at screens an hour or two before you go to bed. But just, I find it really relaxing and comforting to turn off the light and meditate in the dark. It's really, really, I think, very beneficial um, to do that. So it was a lot of fun to be reminded um, that I'm not just these, these eyes, I'm not just this visual consciousness. The whole body could become, the whole body is a sensory organ. We just don't often notice it because we're rushing around um, eating while we're walking and doing this thing while we're walking or whatever it is. So it's like, can we just take care of ourselves by sitting in the dark, doing one thing at a time, noticing our preferences because we made a little schedule for ourselves. Maybe having again, you know, a accountability person just to be like, hey, I sat for 30 minutes today or hey, I didn't want to sit. Here's all the thoughts that arose about it or you know, just a way to keep having to keep illuminating what's going on in our body-mind. That's mainly what we're trying to do when we, when we um, meditate and when we um, doing one thing at a time really helps to illuminate what's going on and prevents peanut butter bread smearing on your shirt while the director walks by and says, told you so. So, um, yeah, maybe you can some of these practices might be helpful for you. So thank you so much for listening.
and I just realized that we don't really have time for our group meeting, so sorry about that. But I feel like it's important to respond to people's questions about meditating because I think it helps all of us. Um, 